Welcome once again to Maple Grove Covenant Church. So glad that you're with us this morning as we continue our series entitled Common Ground, Building Bridges of Trust That Can Bear the Weight of Truth. A few years ago, I did something that I never thought that I would do. I toured a Hindu temple, the largest Hindu temple in North America. I didn't have to fly to L.A., New York, Chicago, or Toronto. I simply had to drive just a few miles away from our church because the largest Hindu temple in North America is right here in Maple Grove, Minnesota. You may not know this, but back in 2006, the Hindu temple was built, costing nearly $10 million. A thousand families participated in the temple at first, but now well over 4,000 families worship at the Hindu temple here in Maple Grove. Our speaker for today, Reuben David, gave me the tour of the temple, Hindu temple, teaching me and our small group of people about Hinduism and the millions of different gods and goddesses and the different places of worship. And I remember walking up into the temple, this massive structure, and I felt a little bit intimidated. And then I walked in, I took my shoes off and entered into the place of worship. And there was this large golden door, this massive door that you could see. And there was a a number of different places to worship all sorts of different gods. And afterwards, we had an Indian meal in the cafeteria. We met some Hindus from our community. And I met a man by the name of Dr. Sani. And he's the president of the community center connected with the Hindu temple, and he greeted me and our group with this saying, Namate, put his hands together, and he bowed down, and he said, Namate, which means I see the divinity in you. And I thought to myself, that's pretty cool, greeting someone for the very first time by saying, Namate, I see, I respect the divinity inside of you. He went on to describe Hinduism and some of the practices and families uh, of the traditions of faith and worship practices of Hinduism. And I remember leaving that Hindu temple, leaving Dr. Sani's presence, thinking to myself, I really need to learn more about Hinduism. I don't know that much about the people in my community that worship God through this faith of Hinduism. And so I called up Dr. Sani. We had breakfast, and I, he greeted me again with that wonderful phrase, Namate. And we connected, and then we had lunch, and I learned more about his family and his work as a medical doctor and how he helped start Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. And we connected about some of the medical uh, personnel that he knows and that I know, and, and we enjoyed one another's company. And then Dr. Sani invited me to speak at the Hindu temple. And at first I thought that would be pretty cool to be able to share about Jesus and the resurrection at the Hindu temple. But then I got a little bit shy. I felt a little bit uncomfortable. In contrast to my conversation with a Muslim where I was pretty bold to talk about Jesus found in the Quran, I didn't know what to say. So I didn't really return the call. I didn't really connect to try. I kind of wimped out, quite honestly, when it came to talking about Jesus at the Hindu temple. Well, our our relationship continued, and we've since had other types of gatherings and returned uh, phone conversations. And he asked me recently 
if our congregations, the members of the Hindu temple and the members of our church, might somehow come together to do a service project for the sake of others. And immediately I thought, that's kind of cool. You know, common ground for the common good. Maybe we could do something together, break down the, the walls that divide us and build relationships for the sake of others. But then again, I felt a little bit uncomfortable, felt a little bit awkward. You know, are we really supposed to, as Christians, connect with Hindus to do service for the sake of others? I didn't really, I don't really know all that much about Hinduism and the beliefs, and can I really bring and invite my congregation to interact with yours for the sake of others? And I don't quite know what to do. This is a real question that I'm seeking to answer even today. But what would you do if you were me? And a member of the Hindu temple asked you to somehow talk to others about Jesus. How might we as a church, what might God be calling us to do as a church in Maple Grove? To build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth with the Hindus in our city, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. That's the question that we're seeking to answer today and over the next couple of weeks because we want to and desire to build common ground. And Reuben, the gentleman that brought me on this tour, happens to be our speaker for this morning, and he's going to help us answer this question, how do we build bridges of trust to bear the weight of truth? Ruben is part of Faith Search International. He speaks around the world. He grew up in India, is well-versed in both Islam, Hinduism, and other world religions. He has a university degree and speaks to all sorts of different university students, and it's a privilege to have him here this morning. But before Reuben comes up and shares a bit about Hinduism and his own personal journey, I'd just like to remind you of our foundational passage for our series, Acts chapter 17. And a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to read and reread and study this awesome passage of Paul moving out of the synagogue to share in the marketplace the message of Jesus. He went to people that were different from him, different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and he went to Athens to share the truth about Jesus. But he didn't argue with them. He didn't debate. He didn't show how he was right and they were wrong. He actually didn't even quote the Bible. Do you remember what Paul quoted in his interaction with the Athenians? He quoted their poets and their philosophers, and he found common ground about an unknown God. And he tapped into their belief in an unknown God and introduced them to the one true God and brought them into an understanding of Jesus. And with Paul as our model and the scripture as our authority, we seek to do what Paul did, to build common ground to move out of our comfort zone into the marketplace where people are different from us and have a dialogue, have a discussion about who God is and how we can follow God together. And this morning, Reuben David is here with us to speak to us about his own personal journey and Hinduism. Last, last week, we talked about Islam. Next week is on Judaism, then Mormonism, then hopefully 
atheism and Buddhism. This week, we're going to dive into some of the teachings of Hinduism so that we can build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth with our neighbors, co-workers, and friends that happen to be Hebrew. Would you please, or that happen to be Hindu. Would you please join me in welcoming Reuben David. Ruben, once again, so, so grateful. Oh, it's been a delight to be here. To have you here with us and to have you share some of your vast experience and knowledge of Hinduism and your own. You just returned from India yep. on Tuesday, and I know that you spent a lot of time uh, sharing the message of Jesus and building common ground uh, with Hindus all over the world. And just as an opener, uh, would you help us in understanding a bit about how a Hindu perceives God? So A.W. Tozer has a quote that, that or he, he said something along these lines. He said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, which is really a great thing for all of us to consider. What comes to our mind when we hear the word God? But for the sake of our conversation mm -hmm. today, could you just help us hear the answer to that question from a Hindu perspective. What comes to the mind of a Hindu when they hear the word God? It's interesting that uh, you asked me that question because <clears throat> I want to just throw this out. Uh, we, we're talking about common ground uh, across all religions in the world. And here's what I want to say at the outset. All religions in this world are superficially the same. They are superficially the same, but fundamentally, all religions contradict each other. So in that sense, <clears throat> there's a lot of commonality across the length and breadth and the cultures of the world. And so in particularly coming to Hinduism, <clears throat> there are about one billion plus people in the world who follow Hinduism. That's a large chunk of people. And so when you talk about the word God, the word God is the most used and abused word in the entire religious vocabulary. Because that word can take you off tangent in different directions. For the Hindu, when you mention the word God, these are the ideas that pop up. <clears throat> They'll think about life force, power, energy, snake lion, peacock, mountains, trees. All of these things come onto their minds at the mention of the word God because Hinduism is pantheistic in nature in that it believes God is in all and God is everything. So no wonder if you come to India, they worship the trees as gods or the animals as gods or the sun as God, or maybe force and nature all of these things. So the varied ideas of God, pictures of God, pictures of nature that pop up in their mind at the mention of the word God. That's a bit of a stretch for me to get my head around as, yes. you know, monotheism being the traditions of most of us here today. Um, one of the things that you mm -hmm. wrote in your uh, outline, and if you have that, you can follow that uh, follow along. You had a definition yep. of Hinduism. 
Right. And I'm wondering if you could just expand briefly on the definition of Hinduism described in our, in our outline this morning. Absolutely. Let me give you a, a, a bit of what Winston Churchill said about India. You see, you see, India is such an ancient civilization, almost 5,000 years of history to it. Uh, it's hard to define India and more so Hinduism. Uh, Churchill said, somebody asked him, what is India? <clears throat> he said, India is an abstraction. You, you, you really can't define India. I mean, you go to the north, you go to the south. It's a very mosaic of understanding of the notion of Hinduism or the nation itself. So Hinduism to me is a conglomeration of various belief systems. It is the only religion in the world which tries its best to absorb everything while excluding nothing. In that sense, the whole notion of relativism as a philosophy in the West has its roots in Hinduism because Hinduism believes anything goes because all is part of the reality of nature. So there are a whole lot of understanding of Hinduism in the broader definition. It doesn't have a founder like, you know, we could trace back in the Christian tradition, ultimately God is the ultimate reality, but then the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world uh, to show to us who God is. In that sense, Hinduism doesn't have a common person as the founder. They don't hold to any, the only text. They may borrow from many texts. So as I've given you the definition in the, in, in, in the booklet there, it, it, grown, it grows out of ancient texts uh, which have been meditations, enlightenment received by gurus who sit on the mountains and meditate, and they receive this epiphanies about the other world, and they've penned them all down, and, and it is in tombs of work. And so that's where it's a very broad definition. Let me, let me further make it complicated here. <laughs> there are traditions in Hinduism um, which believe that God is one. And if you talk to other Hindus, they'll say God is many. So they swing from monotheistic idea to pantheistic idea. And that's what makes it difficult and complex to understand Hinduism because it's open to all interpretations. Now we can get an idea about relativism, postmodernism, New Age. They all borrow from this umbrella of ancient Hinduism. So as we seek to get our heads around this very historical and yeah. vast religious tradition, uh, help us draw from some of the source material. Like, we go to the Bible. What sort of source material or if the, the word, you know, the, the, the Hindu scriptures, what materials do they draw from to, you know, denote and describe their faith? Right. Um, yes, Hindus do have sacred texts dating back to thousands of years. In fact, if you, if you didn't know this, um, India is mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> Do you know that? <laughs> I did not know that. Where, where is, uh, this is Stump the Pastor. Where is that uh, in the Bible? <laughs> it is in the Old Testament, book of Esther, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's in the Old Testament. <clears throat> India is ancient. Um, if you look at the life of most Hindus, classic Indian scholars, they'll say to you, 
that there are texts like Christianity has Bible, Islamic world has Quran, Hindus have texts like Vedas, ancient texts written over thousands of years. And then they have what's called Bhagavad Gita, another text, and other epics of stories, of legends and myths, which all borrow from the meditations of ancient sages who normally have been meditating on the mountain. So they do have texts like this written on papyrus, ancient, you know, text, where classical Indian scholars will tell us uh, this is where the source is. And, but then if you were to go back a little bit further than that, they'll say, well, these texts have come from enlightenments that some gurus had. So, for example, if you go to the Himalayan mountains, the world's tallest, you know, largest mountains are there in Nepal, and you'll see these caves and, you know, old men, long beards sitting in there, and there are legends where people say, well, this guy's been sitting here for 100 years. This guy's been sitting here for 200 years. And, uh, and so, but, so he's been meditating and receiving messages from the outer world, and that's the source of Hinduism. It emerges out of this meditative postures, out of the outer world messages coming inside the human mind, which is written over the years. Some of it is are mythical. Some have historical notations. But I would say to you, they don't bear the, uh, the authority of history like Christianity bears. We have manuscript integrity when it comes to Bible. It's very hard to prove manuscript integrity with Hindu texts. There's a lot of gaps. Right. So there's this... The span of worship practices, there's a span of, I think you mentioned over uh, 330 million different gods or goddesses. There's this span of, of idols and, and worship uh, and a span of literature that can be used in defining and describing Hindu worship. Um, what do you notice as far as common ground yeah. that we can build off of from yeah. some of the Hindu scriptures mm -hmm. that might help us in our conversations and connections with our Hindu neighbors, friends, and co-workers? Yes, the most interesting thing about um, Hinduism. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God in the past spoke to us through various means, through various prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us exclusively through Jesus Christ. Well, that stands alone. Now, when you talk with a Hindu and want to build a common ground, we agree on the notion that there is a God. Every religion believes in that. So when I talk to a Hindu, do you believe in God? Yes, I do believe in God. It's, it's rare to see atheism in India because it's a very religious nation. It's ironical that atheism has a large following in the West. But in India, it's different. There are no atheism or atheists like the way in the Western world has. Although the Western world in its own tradition is also religious because of the Judeo-Christian background this Western civilization has. So the notion of God is very common. I believe in God, you believe in God. The question is, what kind of a God do we believe in? To me, to me, it's okay to use the word God, but I have to be very 
careful and very clear in what I mean by that. You know, Ravi Zacharias tells a very interesting story about his experience in Russia. He was giving a talk about uh, theism, the belief in God, the existence of God, to a packed room of former communist Russian generals. And all of a sudden, in the middle of his talk, a general got up to his feet and said, wait a minute, you've been using the word God, God, God. What do you mean by that? And Ravi says it was stumped for that moment, like, okay, I have to actually define to you what the word God means, because everybody is using it. So the Hindus use the word God, and truth by definition is exclusive. Truth by definition is exclusive. So are there exclusive ideas about God? There is. That's where I want to negotiate or discuss. I want to enter into a dialogue with the Hindus. So what kind of a God are you talking about? Force? Energy, power, or animals? What is the kind of God that you're talking about? Because to me, God has to be a being. Because I'm a being. If the source that created me is a, is a non-material thing, then how do you explain something like me, a being, which has feelings, thoughts, emotions? This cannot come out of a non-material thing, a material thing. And so we have to walk with them with the idea about God, and they'll say yes to it, and then narrow down to the question, do you know that God is actually a being, not just a force, not just an energy, not just a power? He's actually a being. God can think, God feels, God aches, God has all the emotions that we have, because he made us in his image. As you walk them through that kind of a reasoning, it appeals to them all of a sudden, okay, which means I can relate to this God, which has been the inner ache for millions of Hindus. You ask them, have you talked with God? Have you met God? It's Christians who say, well, this morning I had a talk with God. Oh, really? Okay. I'm, I talk with God every day. Oh, my. The God of the universe talks to you. It's Christians who use that phrase. And Hindus are fascinated. I can talk to God? Really? That does something to their inner longing. So the notion of a personal God connects yes. with the inner longings of all of us, but particularly a, a to Hindu. The Hindu. And one of the things that you mentioned to me earlier related mm -hmm. to the animal sacrifices that are noticed yes. both in the Hindu teachings yep. as well as a connection point for our Christian teachings. Could you describe that a little bit Absolutely. more? Absolutely. Um, in Hinduism, as you see it in India, the birthplace, you see a lot of blood and gore. I don't know if you've been to Calcutta in India. Calcutta, right next to Mother Teresa's uh, <clears throat> missions headquarters there, there's a large Hindu temple dedicated to a particular Indian deity, a female deity called Kali. On any given day, you know, visitors and tourists will tell you, I've been there, uh, blood flows from the temple. It's also believed that temple has been built on a foundation where 50 infants were sacrificed. <clears throat> the belief uh, of blood doing something to the human soul and spirit 
is archetypal across all religions, more so in Hinduism. The notion that I have to, you know, cut this chicken or cut this goat or somehow to appease the gods through the blood runs through the Hindu theology. And that connects very well. You know, there is a festival in Hinduism, which is observed every year, where they actually self-flagellation. They, they hurt themselves to the point they bleed. So it's a festival where they actually bleed. And it's also found in a certain sect in Islam, but this is predominant in the Indian Hinduism, where they actually hurt themselves with whips and blades until they bleed. I asked one Hindu, why do you do that? He said, you know, I really want to hurt myself so bad that I feel like all my guilt is taken away. I feel like I've paid for it. I want to hurt myself so deep and so bad that I feel like I've paid for it. I said, you know, wait a minute. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He hurt himself. He bled, so you don't need to bleed this way. Blood flowed from him, so you don't need to have that from your body. So they connect with this notion of sacrifice. Then you can walk them through the very idea that the notion of lamb in the Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb, and Jesus is. And further down the road, in the ancient Indian text called the Vedas, and I can go on for hours describing to you the details. I'll give you one verse. In the ancient Indian Vedas, it does mention an interesting aspect of Jesus. Jesus is found in every religion. In every religion. And that alone makes him unique. Here's a verse in the book of... <clears throat> I'll, I'll pronounce this to you the way Indians would do it. The verse says, Nishkalanka Purusha Shandogya. It's an ancient Sanskrit language. What simply means, it should be without a blemish. Who is that? He should be without a blemish. And it gives a chapter and verse 16 in the ancient Indian text. And further on it says, that yagna purusha <clears throat> in the Indian language is free from all sins. Now in the book of Leviticus chapter 22 verse 20 it says, do not bring anything with defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. And then in 1 John 3, 5 it says, in him Jesus Christ there was no sin. And in 1 Peter 2, 22, who did not sin? And 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin, this Lamb of God who knew no sin, was no sin himself, was actually mentioned in the ancient Indian text, albeit buried in their own myths, in their own ideas. But the fact remains, the very life of Jesus is being chronicled, hidden deep in the mysterious text of the ancient Hindu religion. Well, that was new information for me not that long ago that we can actually find Jesus yes. in <clears throat> the Hindu text and very descriptive, very descriptive understanding of the lamb and the sacrifice pointing to the perfect sacrifice, right. Jesus Christ. And as I was mm -hmm. going through the outline <clears throat> that's in your program, on the back side there are resources. On the bottom there are some online tools that you can go to and in those tools, you can see some of these things that Reuben is describing to us, if you'd like to go in greater detail, about connecting with the Hindu text and the teachings of sacrifice pointing Absolutely. to Jesus. Another thing that's noted on uh, Reuben's outline is this quote at the bottom of the page. It says this, 
I have never yet failed to get a hearing if I talk to Hindus about forgiveness of sins and peace and rest in your heart. And I find this quote to be quite inspiring as we seek to build bridges of trust with our Hindu neighbors, friends, and co-workers. And before you dive into this particular um, quote, would you be willing just to share a bit of your faith story yes. and how you came to faith mm -hmm. in Jesus Christ growing up in India? Absolutely. Well, I just came back from India five days ago, Tuesday midnight I came. <clears throat> um, I just came after being at the funeral of my own mother. She passed away uh, just two weeks ago in India. Uh, my mother is the first one in our entire clan in the southern part of India in a Hindu-dominated village where she grew up 40-plus years ago in India. <clears throat> uh, growing years were there in that village, and uh, she was a devout Hindu, a dyed-in-the-wool Hindu, as so to speak, somebody who was so committed to Hinduism. In fact, my, my grandparents were all devout Hindu practitioners who raised my mother in that fashion. Every morning she would wake up and pay her obeisance to the Indian gods and goddesses. As I mentioned to you, there are 330 million gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon, and she had her own favorite gods there. And so she would get up and worship and bow down to these gods and offer the sacrifices the way she could do it, and the sun worship and all of that. One morning she said to me, as she was in the room, uh, bowing to one of these idols there, and all of a sudden the room became bright and a light began to enter that room. She thought maybe the sun was high up in the noon, and this is normal in India <clears throat> to feel the brunt of this noonday sun. But the sunlight wasn't the main. The light inside the room was increasing in intensity. Dazed and rather shocked as to what was happening in the room. I remember her telling me very vividly. Her eyes became very wide as she told me this. A being took a shape in that light. And I was in a trance-like situation because all around me it was brilliant light. I was lost in it, but I could feel the contours of an image, a being. I could feel the presence right next to me. And I heard this voice mixed with dread and yet with a drawing tenderness. And the voice said to her in her own language, I am Jesus the Lord of the universe, bow to me. And in that split second, my mother said to me, she just bowed. And then she saw a cross, very clearly a cross, and Jesus there, and people around the cross praying in praying postures. And that was the most powerful, dramatic encounter through which my mother came to know there is a God and this God speaks and this God's name is Jesus and this God is actually very powerful than all the gods that I've been worshipping. And the vision happened three times 
the following two days. And uh, that was the key moment in the history of my clan in India where Jesus visited my mother, revealed himself to her, and she became a believer in the Lord. So in that sense, uh, we became the first Christian family, and I observed in the growing years of my life there, persecution, social ostracism, and that too for a woman in India to have this kind of an experience and to be very loud about it, kept us far and cut off from all our relatives. But my mother persisted in this newfound faith. Signs and wonders were happening. And she would tell everybody, this God that I'm now worshiping is very powerful, very powerful. And he appears to me and he talks to me. And over the years, I've observed as I began to share with all my cousins and relatives and because we were the odd ones out because we were the Christians in that village. And I observed how devout my mother and my father were in their newfound Christian faith that they had to face so much of persecution, but they stood very rock solid. And I began to question myself, what is it about Jesus that is so unique that my mother wouldn't stop talking about it and signs and miracles and all these supernatural things are happening in our family. My faith journey took off because I lived in the supernatural. I observed the supernatural. I witnessed the supernatural. You see, in India, in a culture where people are used to supernatural, the Lord Jesus Christ expresses and reveals himself in all his might and power to that culture. And as I watched my family go through this transition, my parents gave us all Bible names, and people asked, why do you have a Western name? I said, no, if you really want to know my name, it's not an American name, it's a very Hebrew name. And I tell them, look, I happen to believe in a Hebrew God, not in a Western God. And this Jesus that I believe, the Bible says he wasn't born in Boston, but he was born in Bethlehem. And so Jesus has got nothing to do with the Western world. He was born in the Middle East, and this is of a Middle Eastern origin. It so happened that it transformed the Western world. So I had to demystify the Westernization of Jesus. And I found out as I began to pour deep into the Hindu text and scriptures, my intense desire was to make known that the supremacy of Jesus is made known to all the people who ask me questions because I get very worked up when people talk about Jesus. Because you know what? There is nobody like Jesus. I don't care about political correctness. I want to tell you, America is going through a situation today. We need to make an unabashed, bold stand for the exclusivity of who Jesus Christ is. And that's the truth. There's a saying, there's a saying. Many, many great men, great philosophers, great teachers, great ethicists came into the world to make bad people into good people. But Jesus came to make a dead man a living man. There's a whole world of difference between making a bad man into a good man and to make a dead man a living man. This intense desire to somehow make a case 
why Jesus is supreme, unique, the only one, set me off on a journey. I didn't leave a stone unturned in that pursuit as I began to drink into all that I could about Jesus Christ. Looking at him from all the perspectives of different religions in the world. And over the years, the Lord Jesus Christ has guided me, led me to experience him in a profound, deeper way. To make an authentic, a clear, an evidence-based, a reasoned defense for the gospel of Jesus and for the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus and for the supremacy of Jesus because as the Bible declares, there is no name given in heaven or under heaven or over the earth or any place except the name of Jesus through which you will have salvation. And this resounds across the world. And so my journey has been one in which I observed my parents the first converts from a very dramatic encounter. Observing my relatives over the many years, eventually they all became Christians. After 30 long years, 95% of all my relatives and extended relatives gave their lives to Jesus. And the town in which my mother grew up, 90% became Christians. A place which had no church, now there are churches all over. That's been the journey for me. And that's the vision that I have to wake up America to. Oh. Thank you. If you could have a little more passion about that, that'd be helpful. But we'll work on that later. There, we're going to wrap up our time with Ruben with just this quote here that you left us with this. I have never yet failed to get a hearing if I talk to Hindus about forgiveness of sins and peace and rest in your heart. And just some of your closing thoughts on this quote that you have left with us as we seek to build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth with our Hindu neighbors, friends, and coworkers. Here's my <clears throat> thoughts on this, you know. Hinduism says, you sin, you pay. In the Christian gospel, God says, you sin, I pay. The story is told about an Indian woman on the banks of River Ganges in northern India. The River Ganges is the longest river like Mississippi in America. The River Ganges in India is hailed as a, a sacred river because they believe this river actually stems from the gods. One day, a woman was standing on the banks of the river with her six-month-old infant baby very tightly held in her arms, and she was crying. A native Indian Christian missionary was observing this, and he saw her walking down the bank where the waters were actually very, very fierce in their current. And the missionary says he saw her weeping uncontrollably at the same time trying to somehow cuddle a little infant in her arms and and all of a sudden, in a blinding second, the missionary said, I saw the baby, I, I saw the woman just throw the baby in the water, just like that. Just like that. And then she began to beat her chest and weep again. And, and the missionary walked up to her and asked her, Why? Why are you crying so much? Why did you do that? And she said, You know, I have so much of guilt. I've, I've, I've got all these things in my heart that's bothering me. I'm fighting something inside of me. I want to be free from it. 
And I was told by my gurus where I, my village, that if I sacrifice my six-month-old infant to the river god, that I'll be okay. I love that baby, but I've thrown him in the river now. And the missionary knelt beside her and said, Oh, Jesus is able to give you that inner rest, that inner peace that you're so deeply longing for. No wonder God made me see all this and talk to you. And then she cried all the more. She said, I wish you came half hour ago. I wish you came half hour ago. I would have had my child. Well, that's the kind of intense desire that is there in the hearts of many Hindus. A desire to find an inner peace, a sense of forgiveness, an assurance that if I die, I'll be with God. This deeper longing is across all human hearts. That's why, besides all the arguments and the evidences that we can marshal against Hindus or Muslims, anybody, I always go to the fact, your heart is troubled. Your heart is looking for peace. You're actually looking for something very deep. And Jesus, on the cross, said, It is finished. It is finished. Take it. Take it. Jesus is able to fill that inner void. And that's what Hindus are longing for. An inner assurance an inner certainty that my sins are forgiven, that I don't need to bleed myself, that I don't need to walk miles and miles to offer penance to some gods. I don't need to wait these years to somehow get my karma worked out, but I can have it in the finished work of the cross. That's what a Hindu is longing for. An inner certainty and an inner assurance which Jesus alone is able to give. And this to me is profound and deeper. Perhaps some of you are longing for that, desiring for that. That is the human longing and more specifically the longing of every Hindu heart. Deep sense of longing for forgiveness, for peace, and for rest that can come only from the one who knows what is rest. People talk about peace, but the prince of peace is the only one who can give us peace. And so therefore I want to leave you with these thoughts. If you, if you were to meet a Hindu, go for these deeper questions buried in the heart. Do you really have that peace? Do you really have an assurance? Do you really know in your heart? Do you really have a rest? And sooner or later, they will open up their heart and tell you, Oh, this is what I'm longing and looking for. Where can I find it? Come to the fountain of living waters, and all your hunger, all your thirst will be satisfied till you want no more. 
And that's what we need to offer. The living water, the rest, the peace that Christ gives. May that be our confessions about Jesus. Let's give it up to for Reuben David and Shannon with us. As the worship band comes up, we are going to wrap up our service together. And just a reminder that these are the words that we can bring with us as we enter into our neighbors, family, friends, and coworkers that Jesus loves us, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to be that sacrifice. I love the way John wrote it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And that's why we gather on a Sunday morning to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the message that we can give to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. And that's the reason why we have a message of hope and healing into a world that needs to hear the message of Jesus. And a message that not only is for those outside, but for those inside the church walls. For we all need to return to this love, this grace, this payment for our sin. Reuben said it so well, in Hinduism, we sin and we pay for it. In Christianity, we sin and God paid. Let that be our heart as we walk through our lives, understanding and experiencing the vast love of God and the forgiveness of our sins offered to us and to our world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can hear from you. We thank you for this moment that we can be equipped to share your forgiveness with others. May our lives reflect your story, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.